stress, real murder, imagined murder. It's been a long week. It's time for a strength check. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This is Strength Check. Thanks again for listening to us. We really appreciate it. So a little bit of a grab bag of topics this week. A play for progress update. I promised you some true crime, so we're going to talk about a case from the early 1900s. And I want to talk to you this week about carrying stress and, and being honest about your stress and speaking those problems out into the world. So starting off with our, our play for progress, Dungeons and Dragons project. A little bit of a mea culpa too. Last week I had said, and on the Twitter account this week, I had said that we would hopefully have some audio from this week's training session. So we have audio, but about that. Your boy forgot to bring the actual microphone to campus and instead we tried to record using my phone and that didn't go so great. So we've got audio. If you want to listen to a D&D game, like you're listening to it through the wall, um, with a micro, like a microwave going in the background. Not a great look for the show. So in the interest of putting our, our best foot forward, we're not going to play the audio. Um, but good news is that not only are we going to be going to MipaCon uh, next month, um, we also have a table there. So even though we haven't really done much in the way of getting the program off the ground at any schools yet, we do have a chance to go out and network and talk to people in northeastern Pennsylvania about what we're trying to accomplish. And so that's a really cool first step for our project. I left off last week with a little bit of a cliffhanger, both in the game and on the podcast, about one of our characters. Uh, her name is Nova. And at the end of last week's game, um, because the player had to leave early, um, we decided to have a little bit of fun and say that the character Nova disappeared. So our session last night was all about what happened to Nova. Is she okay? And a lot of my students who are playing this game, my volunteers who are playing this game, and going through the training with us are criminology students. So criminology and psychology and political science students. So the games, at least for us, tend to take a little bit of a, a turn in that direction. So Nova had been kidnapped. They found a matchbook. They found a broken monocle. They found a torn piece of fabric in the window. She had been kidnapped by some cultists. The run-of-the-mill Dungeons & Dragons-style cultists who are just trying to make, you know, a little bit of a sacrifice to please Osmodeus. Like, no big deal. The rest of the party was able to save the day. Uh, your boy Chaz was his chaziest. And they stopped them from throwing Nova off a bridge to try to please Osmodeus, like I said. So I really like that, that story, um, just as a, a throwaway kind of team-building exercise, because... They decided to abduct her because she's part fairy. Like the the student who's playing Nova liked the idea of somewhere in her family tree, somewhere in her past, there's fairy. And so I think that's a really cool way, a really interesting way to confront real life issues of racism in a tabletop role-playing game. That 
you know, not at all dissimilar from stuff that's been happening historically or stuff that's been happening currently and kind of challenging both the volunteers, the student volunteers who are learning the game with how they would reckon with this in the game and then eventually, you know, try to confront people who are going through the program and playing the game with what is the ramifications of that. That a character who, just like in real life, right, has no control over who they are or where they come from, um, being targeted and singled out for for those characteristics. And in the case of this particular character, characteristics that aren't necessarily visible. So we're still learning the ropes here. I admit that it's kind of ham-fisted, but at the same time, I think that it's okay for it to be ham-fisted. I, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to make it really, really obvious with college student volunteers or with the, the high school and maybe middle school students that we get to help out one day too. So the good news is that Nova lives and the party didn't kill everybody who tried to kidnap her. Um, they knocked one person out and another person was already KO'd. Uh, it's a long story. So we'll see what happens as they try to interrogate these these doofy cultists that tried to kidnap one of their own. So while we're thinking about Play for Progress and our upcoming MipaCon trip, or upcoming MipaCon weekend, I guess I should say, one of the things that I wanted to talk about this week was how we carry stress and what that can do and ways in which people try to like dance around this idea. And so I say this, or I want to talk about this this week because I myself am really stressed out. This has been a stressful couple of weeks for me. And as I was laid out earlier, thinking about why do I have this tension headache? What's going on that's causing my entire brain to feel like it's going to pop out of my head? Uh, I started like doing a mental checklist of all of the projects I have going on and all of the things that I'm doing to try to, I guess explain to myself or make myself believe that it's okay to feel overwhelmed and that it's okay to step back from some from some stuff that I'm doing. Not that the show is ending. The show is not going to end. Um, a little bit of background. For me, over the last two years, I would say community service has become really important to me. In a lot of ways, I feel like I'm paying penance for inactivity in my own past or bad choices that I made in the past. And so trying to get out there and do as much good as I can has been something that's really important to me. And also trying to use that work that I'm doing out there to better the lives of my students or to help them do their own networking. But that's had to change um, just because I've got two kids and the baby is almost walking. We bought her her first pair of shoes today. She's got some size four baby Chuck Taylors, so very excited about that. So I have to be here. And I know from all of the research out there that I do and that I teach about that my kids need me here. So I can't be out working in three different counties like I was trying to a year ago, almost four different counties. Um, I just can't do that anymore. I can't spend that much time on the road, away from home, it just can't happen. So I'm in the process of trying to transition away from that life out in the world to a more of an internet presence, which is why you have this show um, and some other things that I'll plug here at the end of the episode today. So what that means is that I'm kind of right now stuck in this middle ground where I have community obligations, I have home obligations, I have work obligations, I'm developing at least four, well, 
I'm teaching at least two new classes next year, maybe as many as four new classes. That's a lot of work. Some of that stuff is going to be subject of future Strength Check episodes as I walk my way through this summer when I'm not in the classroom to think out loud and take you through this this class development as I prepare to teach about revolutions and true crime in the fall and all of the work that's going into that and all of the really amazing and, and mind-blowing and mind-boggling stories that I've come across, one of which we're going to talk about here in a second. I am writing a book about crime in the 20th century, um, every decade of the 20th century. That's a huge project. I'm submitting a chapter to another book or a proposal to another book about Star Wars and the way that Star Wars depicts governmental crime and the way that the criminal justice system is structured by the government, at least in this fantasy setting. Now, a side note, I'm a massive Star Wars nerd. It's like the franchise that's defined my entire life. So the possibility of, of doing this, whether or not the proposal is even accepted, like I'm probably going to geek out and write like 50 pages about Star Wars. And that's ridiculous. And I can't believe that I get to say that out loud, but stressful. What else? I've got this podcast now. I've got these other projects that I mentioned that I would mention in a second. And then I've got home life stuff. I've got a nursery or a baby's room that needs to be painted. We've got tree stumps that need to come out of the ground. We've got work to do here. And so I'm stressed and I have every right to be stressed. So for those of you who are listening, who are beating yourselves up because you feel stressed out and you don't know why, or you think that it's silly or stupid to feel this much pressure, talk about it. You know, sitting here in my basement talking into a microphone, I feel a little bit better just speaking that out into the world. So I would encourage you to try to do the same. Just take a few minutes, get it off your chest, get it out of your system, free up that space in your mind, get some of that pressure off, and then get back to work. This also comes up because as I try to stay more local, I went to my very first school board meeting a few days ago. And it's not something that I was really planning to do this early. My oldest daughter is going to be entering kindergarten next year, and so I figured this was something that would come up eventually. But a friend asked me to, to go, or told me about this, and suggested that I go. So I went. I have this thing about people asking me for help that I, like I said, paying penance and all that. And so this district is really interesting because, I mean, like any public school district, they've got their problems. Their mismanagement, their their budget problems, and, and everything that comes along with public school. So there wasn't a whole lot in the, in the meeting that was really surprising to me. Uh, but what, what did come up was, earlier this year, the district suffered a, a substantial loss, a really major loss when a student died by suicide um, in the district. And it was a, a huge tragedy. Like I said, of course it's a tragedy. People are still very, very, understandably, very, very upset about this. And so a parent asked at the meeting, what's the district doing to try to better serve all of the students there, to try to prevent something like this from happening again, to try to prevent a tragedy like this from happening again? And you know, I perked up a little bit because I know a thing or two about a thing or two. And the board's answer to the question really demonstrated how little, I think, 
they understand the problem at hand because one of their solutions was that, well, maybe students don't feel really connected to their administrators. And so maybe we should come up with a plan to make sure that vice principals and principals are following them for longer in their career. And maybe that will help them feel more attached to the school and decrease the chances of any future tragedy from happening. Now, I get it. I think their heart's in the right place. I think that schools should be doing more to try to make students feel more welcome, less isolated, less alienated. If only there was some other solution that has nothing to do with making sure that a student has a couple extra years with a vice principal. What could that be? I wonder. If only there wasn't some like ridiculous practice that we've caught ourselves in over the last 20 or 30 years that we are slavishly devoted to that is really putting a ton of pressure on students and making them feel like if they're not successful now, then they'll never be successful. What could that be? And it's also this thing where it's really given schools a bad reputation and has caused so many people to pull out and find alternative methods to educate their kids. Like, what could that be? I know. Let's stop relying so heavily on standardized testing. How about that? How about schools stop teaching the test? How about we stop having 75,000 standardized tests throughout a, a public school career? How about we move away from that? How about we stop telling kids that if they fail one test in sixth grade or they don't score as well as they should on a test in the sixth grade or whatever, that their entire life is now in jeopardy? I'm not saying that that's why this particular tragedy happened, but I bet you that there are a lot of other tragedies at a lot of other schools that have a little bit to do with the fact that we are putting kids through the grinder. And so maybe it's time to sit back and think about what's the point of school. Maybe it's time to sit back and think about what has happened to us. Maybe it's time to sit back and think about, is it really a good idea to be teaching people that all they are is their work and that all they are is their bottom line? All they are is their bank account because I think it's making everybody miserable. So have that ex that vice principal around for another year or two, that could help, I guess. I mean, I don't know how many kids out there are really depressed because they're not spending so much time with their vice principals and they can't keep their administrators straight. And there's a lot that schools can do better. There's a lot that schools can do to help kids feel more attached and coming up with really complex curriculums or curricular maps and all that kind of stuff, standardized tests and learning plans, things of that nature. While well-intentioned, you know what they say about good intentions. I don't know. I'm just one guy. I don't know much. But it seems like we should probably pull back a little bit. So I had promised you some true crime this week, and so it's time to deliver on that. I made you sit through all of the touchy-feely philosophical stuff that I'm sure everybody comes to strength check for. 
So this week I want to talk about a man named Stanford White. So the story about the murder of Stanford White and my understanding of this of his murder and the trial of Harry Thaw and everything that I'm about to talk about comes from a book called The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century by Simon Botts. I hope I pronounced your name right, Simon, if I ever meet you or you ever happen to listen to the show. It's a really interesting story. I think there are lots of um, stories from the 20th century, especially the early part of the 20th century, that can demonstrate how our understanding of crime has changed, the way that we think about and talk about crime, both in the private conversations like this one, as private as the podcast is, I guess, or publicly, um, because there's a big media element to Stanford White's murder that you're going to talk about here in a second. So again, if you want to hear more about this, check out The Girl on the Velvet Swing. It's an incredible book. I'm not being paid to, to um, promote this. So again, it's a good read. Check it out. Stanford White was an architect in New York City. He designed the second iteration of Madison Square Garden. He was a very wealthy, very popular, well-known architect because of his work on the garden. And once that second version of the garden was completed, money started rolling in, contracts started rolling in for him. Um, and for a brief period of time, he, was, he wasn't the man, but he was basically the man. Stanford White was a patron of the arts. He knew everybody who was anybody in New York City and would have these lavish parties in his apartment. Stanford White also was a rapist, and Stanford White was murdered because of allegations that he raped a young starlet named Evelyn Nesbitt. So Evelyn's story is very tragic. Evelyn Nesbitt had a very, very sad life. We talked in, on this show in the past about how one of the, I think, common and, and proper and appropriate responses to story like this, stories like this is to feel like empathy and, and really sad for the, everybody involved. But in this case, I think Evelyn is especially tragic. So Evelyn's father died of natural causes when she was very young, and it threw her family into like economic turmoil. And she started modeling, having people take her picture as a way to help her mother make ends meet. And she was very successful doing this. Evelyn became her family's main source of income, and her mother decided to move them to New York City to hopefully try to capitalize and move her up to something bigger. And Evelyn eventually got a job. I think she was dancing on Broadway or off-Broadway musical. And so she meets Stanford White through her, her time on the stage. And Stanford starts inviting her to his parties. And she meets everybody who's anybody. Like I said, Stanford knew everybody who was important in the city, um, especially because of his, his success on the garden. And so she goes to these parties. She's very, very young, um, 15 or 16 years old at the time, if memory serves. And Stanford is infatuated with her. He, upon hearing her story, the tragic, sudden death of her father, Stanford White became like a patron to the Nesbitt family. And Evelyn's mother, it wasn't like she was in love with him, although I think some people think that she might have been. Um, and who would blame her, right? He's coming along to throw all this money at her family, save her children, put Evelyn's brother through school, um, help them out. Really, like, anything they needed, Stanford White was there to help. Um, so he could do no wrong in Mrs. Nesbitt's eyes. So, anyway, one day, um, Evelyn performs. There's going to be a party at Stanford's apartment after the show. 
she's tired, she doesn't really want to go, but it's Stanford, like, you kind of have to. So she goes to his apartment, and he opens the door, and he's like, well, I think all of our friends forgot about us, there's nobody else here. So she's a little uncomfortable about this, because she's she's been with him by herself before, but he's insisting that they just have a party, just the two of them. And so you can probably guess where this is heading. He puts something in her wine for her champagne, and she wakes up after the fact. And Stanford says to her something along the lines of, don't bother telling anybody about this. Don't bother making a big deal out of this. It's really nothing. Talk to any of your friends, and they'll tell you that this is just something that happens in the city. This is a rite of passage. This is something that happens to young women who are stars like you. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And so she's young and naive, and that answer kind of works for her. Now, along the way, she meets a man named Harry Thaw. Harry is a really enigmatic guy, and him and Stanford hate each other. The Thaw family has money, so this is another... I think Stanford White probably saw him as a competitor, and they really are at conflict with each other, competing for Evelyn's attention, for her affection, for her loyalty. And Harry really wants to marry Evelyn, but Evelyn doesn't want anything to do with him. And he throws everything at her that he can. He runs every kind of game on her that he can think of to try to convince her to marry him. And eventually, I guess it was like a war of attrition, she is worn down and she says yes. And one day when they're, I believe they're on a cruise, Evelyn tells Harry what Stanford White did to her. And Harry wants to know every detail of what Stanford White did to her. And Harry is very upset about this. Harry is livid. Harry becomes obsessed about this. He can't believe that somebody had done this to her. Even though they weren't together at the time. Even though there was nothing he could have done at the time to stop it. Because he wasn't in the picture. He is obsessed. He is furious about this. So they travel. Harry's family doesn't really approve of Evelyn. Um, they think that Evelyn is beneath beneath Harry. She's just a run-of-the-mill actress. Some of the pictures that she had taken when she was younger, they're nothing scandalizing, but to a family like the Thaws, it, it wasn't something that you did. Um, so she's kind of like the black sheep, and she's very miserable living with this family, with her in-laws. She's not welcome. So Harry's solution, when Evelyn gets kind of morose and depressed like that was really just to throw money at her. And so she's really miserable, and he decides, okay, well, let's go on another cruise. If you got a problem, take a cruise. And so she perks up, um, mainly because they're going to go back to New York City. Um, they had been in Pittsburgh, I believe. They're going to go back to New York City, catch up on the gossip, what's going on in the town, who's feuding with who, and then go off on their ship and travel all over Europe like they had done. And so they go back to the city, Everything's great. Um, they go to the garden to take in a show, and they see Stanford sitting in the front row um, watching the girls. And Harry's acting very strange, and Evelyn's not really sure why. Evelyn sees Stanford before Harry does, and Harry finds out that Stanford's there, and he stands up, and he makes his way to the front of the auditorium where Stanford is sitting, takes out a gun, and shoots him. Point blank. Dead. He gone. No more Stanford White. Now, nobody in the theater really understood what happened. 
they thought that there's just this man standing up in the front row. The people on stage knew what had happened and were panicking. And off stage, the director's like, just go, just go, just go. Um, but eventually, people put two and two together that something just happened, and this man was just murdered in front of them, and the show stops. And Harry puts his hands up, like, you got me, I did it. People are rushed out of the auditorium, the show stops, Harry's arrested, and Harry admits from word one that he did it. Harry's not trying to make any secret about this. Harry, and he couldn't, really, I mean, there's a whole room full of people who saw him do it, so... Harry says that not only did he do it, he's proud that he did it. Stanford White assaulted his wife. Stanford White deserved to die. So it becomes this major, major story in New York City. The trial of the century. And there are people writing in in support, writing letters of support into the papers, into the, into the jail, telling Harry that he did the right thing. And the subsequent investigation into this unrooted this whole underground like sex club that Stanford White and his people were running. And there was a lot of evidence to suggest that maybe Evelyn Nesbitt wasn't the only victim of Stanford or of his friends. And so, like, cockroaches when the light turns on, a lot of New York's upper-crust elite who months before had been, you know kings of the castle, were nowhere to be found. Harry's first trial is a mistrial, and Evelyn's the star. Evelyn takes the stand, explains to the jury and to the audience assembled in the gallery what Stanford did to her. And she is, as far as anybody knows, as far as I know, the first woman in American history to go on the stand and to graphically describe how she was raped. It's so scandalous for people at the time that once the first day of testimony hits the papers, President Roosevelt tries to stop any other publications from talking about the specifics of what Evelyn's testifying to. But at that point, the cat was out of the bag. And our coverage and understanding of how to cover and just the way that we talked about rape and sexual assault changed because of this case. But that was the first trial, and it was a mistrial. The second trial, by then... Things between Harry and Evelyn had kind of started to chill a little bit. Harry's family blamed her for what happened to him. She ruined his life just like his mother predicted. And so Harry's story gets really interesting. And Evelyn kind of drops off to the side, unfortunately. Harry pleads insanity the second go-round, thinking that they can get him into an asylum and then bribe his way out of the asylum. And everything will be great. He'll just be gone for a couple of days and it ends up that he's in there for a considerably longer period of time. Harry ends up escaping from the asylum. He just walks out the front gates during a delivery, runs to a waiting car, and takes him into Canada. He hangs out in Canada for a while. The police eventually catch on, because when he was on the train across the border, I think he took a train across the border, uh, he happens to see a police officer who's reading a newspaper with him on the front page, and it's like something out of a movie. The officer looks at Harry's picture, then looks at Harry, picture, and Harry. And Harry's like, what's up? That's me. Yup. What are you going to do about it? And Harry thought, I just escaped from an asylum, and I'm fleeing the country. Huh. Rich people, right? So Harry ends up being caught, being extradited back into the States. He 
the Canadians just like dump him at the border. He's on on the run again, but they catch him, take him back. There's another trial. He's recommitted. Eventually, he gets out. Um, all of the politicking over who's running the asylum or the hospital um, eventually gets him out. And uh, he and Evelyn are divorced. Um, family wants nothing to do with her. And Harry just kind of goes about his business until he is arrested a short time later for violently assaulting an 18-year-old young man in Philadelphia, I believe. And as it happens, all of the violence that Stanford White had done to Evelyn really paled in comparison to what Harry Thaw is alleged to have done to Evelyn. Not just assaulting her sexually, but also beating her. So this poor woman somehow found her way trapped between two borderline sociopathic, possessive, power-hungry, controlling, manipulative, violent, sadistic men, one of whom killed the other for whatever reason. Harry did his time for that assault, lived to be an old man. He died in his 70s in Florida. He lived until the 1940s. So, like I said, these stories are sad. Um, but trying to find the message here and the historical significance here is pretty, I think, a pretty worthwhile experience, right? A pretty worthwhile journey. Because, like I said, how often nowadays would you, do you even imagine the president interfering in coverage of a trial that didn't involve him because he thought that it was too inappropriate or too scandalous for anybody to be reading about, that this is, this is challenging the morality and the moral fiber of the United States if we hear about how this woman was assaulted. It wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. I don't think anyone. So that's it for this week. Thank you all for tuning in. You can follow the show on the Red Hot Twitter machine at Strength Check. You can follow me at Hey Dr. Will, H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. You can find us on all the podcast places on iTunes and Spotify. Tell your friends, leave a review for us. For those of you who are in Northeast Pennsylvania or in the Northeast area, we're going to be at NEPACon the weekend of the 11th, 12th, and 13th, I believe. I'm not looking at a calendar, so I hope those dates are right. You can also find me on a new show, Mages and Mentors, streaming live on Twitch, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 Pacific. Mages and Mentors is a project that I'm really excited about. It's myself and several other educators playing D&D together, talking about our experiences using the game for educational purposes, or as in my case, for justice purposes. Really excited to see where this show goes. Playing with some amazing people. We're having our first actual live session, session one, game one, Monday night. So by the time you hear this, if you're listening to this on Monday, hit pause, check us out on Twitch. I'll tweet out the, the link to the show on both my personal account and on the show account. Um, we have a Discord set up there too, so please jump in on that as well. The show is produced by Mark Warren. Mark looked at this around 525 and said, this is tight. Have a good week, everybody. Be good. Fight forever. See ya.